and it should just never be done by anyone other than an anesthesiologist. And I'm not advocating the treatment that I used for Michael for anyone else. That was a one of a kind. Mm-hmm. It was a unique situation with a unique individual. It worked in my hands. The 25 to 30 times that I gave him propofol over the eight years that I knew him, we were successful. I was very careful. I'm a trained professional. I was an expert in the administration of that particular medication. And I was very careful the way I used it with him. And again, if you look at those eight years that I was with him, he didn't miss concerts. He he met his obligations. And he was in a fairly decent state. It comes with a lifetime guarantee. Maybe the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon tour wouldn't have been the miraculous success it was. Maybe the remarkable 60s and 70s tours of Humble Pie, Peter Frampton, the Jay Giles Band, Emerson Lake and Palmer, and Three Dog Night, not to mention T-Rex, would have not been the shows people still talk about. Then there's the different outcome of Michael Jackson's untimely death that may have been avoided had he remained under the close scrutiny and expert advice of our guest, Dr. Neil Ratner. I'm in Woodstock, New York. Woodstock, home of the famous rock festival that was never in Woodstock. It was in... It was in Bethel, Bethel. which is about 60 miles from here. Yeah, the good thing is, though, we definitely, the town, has greatly benefited from from that festival, whether it was here or not. You know, we're a music town anyway, and, uh, you know, people still come here looking for the site. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I have a friend that lives on the Isle of Wight, and they had a rock festival there, and he said a lot of people just came and, and stayed there, not just, uh, you know, took some acid and stayed there mentally, but they actually moved there and, and you know, retired there. I think in terms of, you know, Woodstock, it was kind of the other way around. This was an area that it's like the longest continuous colony of the arts. And then, you know, you had all of those 60 Bob Dylan, Albert Grossman's, you know, crew uh, that came up here. And so I think that actually stimulated the idea for the festival. Where were you born? I was actually born in Brooklyn, New York. My roommate in college was from New York. He talked just like you. His name was Vinny Nigro, and I always called him Vinny Ramon because I had just opened for the Ramones, and uh, uh-huh. he was an Italian-looking guy. He looked like he belonged in the Ramones, so everybody kind of knew him as Ramon in college, one of those things where you get out of college and everybody had a nickname and you never knew who anybody's name was, kind of a deal. But. Yeah, right. I, I hear that. I hear that. <laughs> Your story is as unique as they come. You started out, well, you were in like all the school drummer things. You probably had to study the rudiments, so you're formally trained and everything. And the next logical thing is to play in a rock and roll band. Yeah, totally. That's definitely the way I came up. You know, I, I like to tell people I was born with rhythms in my head. 
how to get them out somehow. <laughs> and uh, much to my parents' dismay, it was usually silverware on the table or banging on my knees or you know some ridiculous way of playing rhythms. But yeah, I went through the uh, you know the school bands and the school orchestra, and I took some drum lessons and. And, uh, you know, I was a child of the 60s. You know, I'm 69. I'll be 70 this summer. So I grew up right in that ripe time. Yeah. And, of course, you know, Beatles on Ed Sullivan, British Invasion. We all wanted to be rock stars, right? Absolutely. It was just the only thing to be. I, I was astronaut and rock star. And uh, NFL football looked pretty cool. But they had a, what, what, what should I say, pygmy league? For football, I could be on that. <laughs> but yeah, so it, no, the pop, the pop Warner League. That's what it was. But, kids, right? Yeah, so I would have been twenty-two years old on the Pop Warner League. Oh yeah, a little old for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm still kind of a kind of a dwarf. But so you and I are contemporaries. Is that what I'm hearing? I'm 63, but I was totally into music. From uh, I never was an Elvis fan, but you know, I was aware of what was going on. It was an extremely pivotal point in American history music, which faded over into Britain. You know, the whole story, it came back with the yep. the, the English guys, got a hold of the blues guys, and yeah, wow, what, what a thing. And and when I was told that, I thought, that doesn't sound anything like Delta Blues to me. But, you know, it took me years <laughs> to kind of fill in the connection. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful how it turned into, like, the Animals and the Kinks, the Beatles, of course. I haven't done an interview yet where somebody didn't bring up the, the Beatles. You know, it's interesting because when I created this project, <clears throat> I put a team together of the people that I worked with in the music business. And one of the guys was a media specialist. He had been one of the early guys at MTV. And when I first wrote the book, I didn't really focus that much on my early music business experience. I just didn't. I don't know. I didn't value it as much as I should have. And he, and he's the guy who's probably 20 years younger than me. And he said, no, you're making a mistake. That's very valuable experience. And we should start a Facebook page, Neil Ratner Rock Doc, and just start talking about your old experiences and talk, do it, whatever you want. And, and so about five years ago now, almost five years ago, I started this page, Neil Ratner Rock Doc. And I started it just hooking into that this day in rock and roll, trying to find historical stuff. And then if I had a personal story, great. If I didn't, I would just try and find stuff that people didn't know. I would look for stuff that I didn't know. I figured if I don't know it, they don't know it. And, you know, I've got like 25,000 followers now, and I've got a YouTube channel, and I do live videos, and I got a, uh, a little spot on... Uh, Radio Woodstock up here to do uh, This Week in Rock on Saturdays. And uh, it's unbelievable to me uh, how important it is to not only people of my generation, but apparently people of all generations. You know, music is the soundtrack of our lives. Yeah, yeah. And everybody wants to know a little bit more about who made it and how did they make it and what were they thinking when they made it? You know, stuff like that. I've listened to your podcast. It's fascinating. And I've always been a, you know, a historian wannabe on it, but I'm finding it. The coolest thing about getting older definitely isn't my looks, 
but it's uh, <laughs> being able to, to connect the what do you dots. Mean, the hair in places that never grew before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good at growing hair at all anywhere, actually. But uh, the connect the dots factor of oh, that guy worked with him, and and somebody helped him there, and this happened, and that happened, and then I I read about you, and yeah, you are a vast warehouse of like I said, one of the most pivotal points in, in the history of music. From the from the drummer thing, this is interesting, you just sort of serendipitously ran into Rick Derringer, of all people. Of all people, Rick Derringer. Yeah, I, I uh, went between my sophomore and junior year of college. Of course, I didn't make it <laughs> as the high school musician. I did go off to college. And in between my uh, sophomore and junior year, I took an apartment in New York City because I got a a training program gig in a hospital, which I thought would help me get into medical school. And, you know, the East Village in the summer of 69 was a pretty cool place to be. The Fillmore was down the block, the Anderson Theater, Electric Circus across town. You know, very much of a hippie haven in a a strange kind of way. And, uh, you know, I moved into this apartment. Lo and behold, I start hearing music. I have upstairs neighbors who are obviously musicians. And it didn't take me long for wanting to go and meet them. So I just, you know, walked upstairs, knocked on the door. This guy opens his door. I don't really know who he is because, you know, Rick had been in the McCoys, obviously. They had Hang On Swoopy. But I was never really uh, paid attention to what they looked like. But, you know, he took me inside. We talked. I realized who he was. And he had just started to play with Johnny Winter. So uh, it was an incredible summer. He introduced me to his friends. I met Johnny. Uh, I met Steve Paul. I managed them. Rick was also very much a part of the Andy Warhol scene. And so he took me to the factory. I met all of Andy's crazies, who by the end of the summer were coming to my apartment. (laughs) You ever have to pinch yourself? Because that's pretty, you know, that was the place to be really at that period of time. Yeah, I mean, but again, you know, when you're living it, it doesn't mean the same thing as when you look back on it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I've heard this said before. For some reason, you know, there's a lot of turmoil, a lot of things that go on you kind of forget about. So years later, you look back on your life and it looks like a finely honed novel, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> also, the time. Did that really know, the, happen? The, the times were so different. Yeah, we still had a war in Vietnam, and uh, you were of an age where that wasn't a good thing for you. No, I had, so Rick and I became friendly, the summer ended, and um, I uh, went back to college, you know. Yeah. But Rick, I had had a little band that summer, and Rick had heard the band, and he knew that I could play the drums, and I said, hey, you know, I don't really want to go back to college, get me a gig, meaning get me a gig as a drummer. And about a year later, he called me up and, and telling me about his gig with Johnny and, and Edgar, Johnny's brother, and Edgar puts together a band. And I was sure he was going to ask me to be the drummer. And then he says, we want you to be the road manager. <laughs> no. <laughs> but you were cool with that. Uh, you know, not at first. You know, at first I, I strongly objected. What do you mean, road manager? What the heck is a road manager? I don't want to. He said, no, listen, be smart. Take it. You'll meet people. You never know. And uh, he convinced me that it would be a clever way for me to enter the music business. You know, I always thought it would be temporary. Something good would happen. And 
you know, I'd meet some hot band that needed a drummer and I'd transition again. Mm -hmm. But, you know, within a couple of months, I realized Road Manager was a serious gig and, and it needed a lot of attention. And so the dreams of being a drummer <laughs> faded as the years went by. But as a road manager, you ended up working with uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Pink Floyd, T-Rex. Imagine the list goes on Actually, and on. as as a road manager was with um, Edgar... And then the next thing, I was in a, an assistant manager to a guy named D. Anthony. I left Edgar after about a year, and I went to work for a guy named D. Anthony. He was looking for an assistant. He was a real major player back in the day. He managed uh, ELP in America, Humble Pie, Jay Giles, Peter Frampton, um, and wow. he taught me you know, management. He taught me a ton about the business. He introduced me to his friends like Bill Graham and <laughs> Frank Barcelona from Premier Talent. And um, I ostensibly uh, went on tour with his groups to do box office because, as you know, Bruce, back in the day, groups actually collected cash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody trusted anybody. And so I was kind of the bag man. And then when I went on an ELP tour, they were in transition and they asked me to come to England as their quote unquote general operations director, which just meant that they had gotten a new label. They hired a guy to run the label. They had their overall manager and I would run all of their live whatever. And so I moved to uh, London and I did some tours with them. And then I had this concept, this idea. I noticed that all these big groups were using multiple companies, sound, lighting, trucking. Uh, and it got very confusing, particularly in the day before cell phones and computers. And I thought, like a circus, why not everything under one roof? Why not one company that provides all of these services? And I decided that I would create that company. Uh, and... It, it, the serendipitous thing that happened there was when I moved to London uh, shortly after I, I was living there a couple of months and I get a surprise phone call from an old girlfriend from the University of Vermont. <laughs> she had moved to London because she married a guy named Peter Watts. And Peter Watts happened to be the chief sound technician for the Pink Floyd. Yeah. So, of course, we got together and Peter and I became really friendly. And... You know, I still needed some pieces to fit together in order to create this company that I wanted to create. You know, I wasn't a technical guy. You know, I was an organizational guy. And so I still needed the technical sound and lighting people. He knew of, he had some very good friends who had probably the hottest sound and lighting company in London. And they were splitting apart. And the guy who was going to keep all the equipment was looking for somebody. He said, I'm going to introduce you. This is the guy you need, and you guys should form this company. And sure enough, we did. Uh, we did a few little things for, like, the Bee Gees Genesis. And then I went back to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and I did a huge tour for them. And then I got the most surprising phone call, you know, of all, when Peter called and said, you know... We've been recording this Dark Side of the Moon album. We tried to go out and, and tour it a little bit, but I want to do quadraphonic sound. The sound's wrong. The lighting's wrong. I've already talked to Steve O'Rourke, Floyd's manager. 
We've never used an outside company, but he's agreed that you're coming. You're coming with us in Circus Talents Limited. That was the name of my company, yeah, yeah. appropriately. <laughs> it's going to be, you know, a part of this tour. And sure enough, you know, I met with Steve O'Rourke. We worked out a deal. And uh, I, my company did the Dark Side of the Moon tour. You were a pioneer. You say you weren't technically oriented. Well, you found some great people because a lot of this stuff had never been done before. I think the, the artists just come up. Hey, here's what we want to do. You know, we're going to fly to Mars and come back and just figure out figure out a way to do it. Absolutely, that's the way it was. <laughs> <laughs> and you had crazy people like Peter and their lighting designer Arthur Mass, who who would stop at nothing to make that happen. You know, and used all kinds of innovative new techniques, lasers when nobody knew what a laser was. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> yeah. So definitely, that was uh, it. Was like that in those days, and uh, you know, the tour was so successful from a production point of view. And of course, after Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd took a break, and Steve O'Rourke gave Peter permission to continue with me with this huge setup that we had. And we went on and did T-Rex, we went on and did Three Dork Night. Jeremiah was a bullfrog! <laughs> Three Dog Night. You know. Three Dog Night, I did their last uh, world tour. And parts of it, the American section, anyway. <laughs> yeah, if I... Crazy guys there, man. Yeah. You know. Yeah, tell me about them. Well, it was an, inter- them, an interesting band, you know. Who, who did that? You know, you have three lead singers, and they all perform well together. They all sing together. Uh, they were picking out songs from everywhere. You know, that was an interesting concept, and they were great. They were great. They were each individually great singers, and their harmonies were like fabulous. Yeah, I, you know, and they did they did songs that people liked. You know, they did some of those Floyd Axton songs, "Joy to the World." Yeah. Oh, was that Lloyd Axton? Or that was his mother, I think, that wrote that song, believe it or not. Oh, I always thought it was him. Or maybe it was him. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Yeah, right? I'll Google that after, after this. He was in a movie with, with uh, what were the uh, Gremlins. I think he was in that movie. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. He was in that movie, yeah. which is a crazy little movie, too. <laughs> so you, were, you, could, you could win the column on Jeopardy on Rock Trivia, I'm sure. You know... <laughs> funny you should mention that i wasn't a jeopardy fan until this guy who's won over a million bucks yeah (laughs) and now i watch you know every night we can't have dinner until jeopardy's over (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting you know if i had a checklist of really important bands through that era that we were talking in the late 60s coming in the 70s probably uh i think you named them all i can't think of anybody else and, uh, well, you know, I, it was such a great concept, and I was really there at a wonderful time. You know, it was really the birth of the rock and roll business back in those days. Yeah, like with- And uh, it, it was fabulous, you know. Uh, probably not so fabulous as I was living it, because, you know, as you're living these things, and, you know, like, as I like to tell people, you know, people talk about, oh, Dark Side of the Moon tour, that must have been an amazing tour to be on. Yeah, it was. But I was working. Yeah. You know, I got up early in the morning. I went to bed late at night, you know, and I had to make sure things went as planned. So, you know, it's not like 
smoking a joint and going to a Pink Floyd concert. That's exactly what I was going <laughs> to the metaphor, because where I was coming from, when I first heard of Dark Side of the Moon, it was like, yeah, man, get stoned and listen to this record. And the next thing was, even if you don't get stoned, after you listen to it for years later, you know, you'll get a contact buzz from Dark Side of the Moon or something. And that was that was my, my angle on it, but I'm sure it was just hard work and, you know, lots of things that could go wrong from your standpoint. Yeah, and again, we were not in a digital age back then. Not at all. We were running lots of trucks and lots of power and, you know, new types of equipment that people weren't that familiar with if it broke down. Yeah, it was it was a trip. Now, we from drummer to road manager, how did the rock doc thing come about? Now you, you went on to finish school or? The rock doc thing actually is an interesting story. I went so i i did all this touring and whatever and then i had this uh epiphany uh where i decided uh i don't i i don't want the rock and roll what happened was i was in a hospital i got kidney stones oh. you know the rock and roll lifestyle i ended up with kidney stones and i was in a hospital in london and it was late at night and i saw a movie an American movie called Not as a Stranger. And the movie focuses on a bunch of residents as they go through their training and become doctors. And and, and it was late at night, and it really spoke to me. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I had this epiphany that, you know, why don't, you know, I don't need to do this anymore. I've accomplished what I set out to accomplish. Not going to be the drummer. Put that on the side for whenever. And let me go back to that original childhood dream of being a doctor. And so I uh, sold the business to my partner, came back to America, had trouble getting into a college because nobody thought I was serious with the kind of background that I had, but finally got accepted to a college on Long Island, Hofstra, worked hard because I had been dismissed for low scholarship just walking out of school, you know, to take the job with Edgar. Yeah. Um, Got good grades, but, you know, medical school is a tough nut to crack. And I was older, and it was at a time in the mid to mid seventies, roughly, where many uh, Vietnam vets were coming back, and a lot of them had gone to school, wanted to be professional people, and so it was hard to get into medical school. Couldn't get into an American medical school, but there were alternatives because some foreign schools, seeing the problems in America, had set up programs catering to the overflow of the students who couldn't get in. And I picked Guadalajara, Mexico, since I had a little background in Spanish, not enough. Had to go to language school for a couple of months to pass, you know, the uh, equivalency exam to get in. And then spent the next four years in Mexico in medical school. Had to do a year of unpaid internship to get back into the American system. And... uh, Thought I wanted to be a surgeon, did two years of surgical residency, and then the guys on the other end of the table, the anesthesiologist, said, you're making a mistake. With your background, you should be here. And they were right. (laughs) I had it with surgery anyway, you know. Uh, and I became an anesthesiologist. So from there, the, uh, more names here. Who's more famous than Michael Jackson? You worked with Michael Jackson. <laughs> what was that like? Yeah, well, so I became an anesthesiologist. And um, I didn't want to be a normal anesthesiologist. Uh, I, didn't, I couldn't see myself in a hospital, being on call every third night. Well, actually, wait, let me go back a step. 
I'm finishing up being an anesthesiologist, and I'm not sure I even want to do this anymore. It was so many years of hard work, so many years in hospitals. I just wasn't sure. It was, and so I, I tried to think of what I could do. And it was the early days of MTV. And I noticed that uh, many media outlets were getting doctors on their staff. You know, you turn on the news and, and there'd be a, a doctor giving a report on medicine. And I thought, wow, MTV, those people need a doctor more than anybody. <laughs> and <clears throat> I'm a doctor. I had real experience in the music business. I'm the rock doc. I should be the rock doc. And so that's when I created that concept. And I actually went to MTV uh, through a lawyer I knew. I got to MTV <laughs> and they loved the concept. But it was so early in the game, they only had insurance uh, insurance companies. They only had record companies as sponsors. Mm. And the record company wasn't going to sponsor a program like mine. They told me, go out and get a sponsor. We'll put it on the air. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Couldn't do it. <laughs> Tabled the whole rock doc thing. And instead, uh, looked at the anesthesia world and said, <clears throat> what could I do that'll be different? Uh, how can I be entrepreneurial? And I noticed that in New York City, doctors were not operating in their office as much as they wanted to because no anesthesiologists had devoted themselves to office surgery because the drugs and the monitors were really geared towards operating rooms in hospitals, yeah. not outpatient surgery. Uh, but with my level of experience, I figured, you know, I've got a very good knowledge of anesthesia. I've got a handle on these drugs. I can do it. And so I was one of the first to create the specialty of office-based anesthesiology in New York City. So, Michael Jackson. Yeah. I started this practice. I did it mostly in the cosmetic and plastic surgery world um, because those were the guys who had the kind of patients who didn't want to go to hospitals, right? Mm. And they weren't treated very well in hospitals because their patients were just day patients. And, you know, outpatient surgery wasn't really big back in that day. Uh, and uh, so I, I had, I built a practice with the cosmetic surgery world. I had this one particular office uh, and we did a lot of celebrities. And when celebrities were going to come in, he would usually give me a heads up first. And we had a practice of speaking to them the night before surgery. <clears throat> and he called me up one day. And he played a little game, don't you want to guess? And blah, 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 blah. And eventually he told me, Michael Jackson. Oh, <laughs> and about a half hour later, Michael called me on the phone, and it certainly was Michael Jackson. We had a conversation. I gave him anesthesia for a small procedure the next day. And if Michael likes you, he'll take your phone number, right? Mm -hmm. He'll take your phone number because he likes to uh, speak to... Uh, people at ungodly hours of the night. That's his MO, <laughs> right? He'll call you at 2.30, 3.30, 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> hey, what are you doing? <laughs> now, obviously, uh, you know, part of it was because he had this terrible sleep problem, yeah. which I discovered over time. But after the procedure, over the course of the next year, we became quite friendly with late night phone conversations. Uh, so he, he trusted you as a friend, it sounds like. Well, I was so different than any doctor he had ever encountered. 
you know, I, I was a real music guy. Yeah. You know, we could talk music. He, you know, talk music, talk medicine. That was very unusual. And Michael got off on it. And, uh, you know, we were able to really develop this uh, great friendship uh, over the telephone. That and you're not freaking out because he's Michael Jackson. You've worked in the business. You've met a lot of people. And uh, it sounds like that'd be refreshing for him. I, it was not only refreshing for him, but... Um, I was able to build a good practice because of that fact, because I had been around celebrity. Uh, and, you know, don't forget the plastic surgery world is, is very celebrity driven as well. Yeah. You know, you're as famous as the celebrities that you do surgery on, really. Mm -hmm. um, and so they like the fact, the surgeons like the fact that I didn't get impressed, that I could treat everybody the same. Having been around celebrity, I understood that it's very easy to get caught up in the magic, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you get caught up in the magic, you start doing things you shouldn't do. That was my question. And you start acting stupid. Yeah, <laughs> uh, rather than doing what you've done, that's routine, you know that works. I think, this is my theory, some doctors get caught up in the high-profile thing and blow it. No question about it, and particularly in anesthesiology, whether it's, a guy, a homeless guy on the street, a celebrity, or your wife, you better do everything exactly the same. Do not vary your routine. Do not change anything. Because when you start to change and make exceptions, bad things can happen. Yeah. And so, again, you know, I was uniquely kind of qualified to do office anesthesia because I could deal with the kind of patients that would come into the office. That is so interesting. Yeah, you wouldn't think it would work that way, but... Uh Propofol, was that a new drug during this period of time, and how did that come into play? Yeah, so I told you the story that I started, you know, was one of the first to, to do this new specialty of office-based anesthesia. Yeah. And, and I mentioned the fact that the drugs were bad. Well, within a few years of when I started my practice, now, you know, I knew I was riding the fence, so to speak. So I was always looking for new monitors, new drugs, anything that could make my life simpler and safer and the patient's life safer. And I started to read about propofol in the mid-80s because it had been uh, discovered and it was used first in Europe. And, and of course, I read all the anesthesia journals and whatnot. And when I read about the drug, I realized that this would be a miracle drug for anesthesiologists particularly for office-based anesthesiologists. The drug that we would use, the, 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 the gold standard, the drug that was used prior to propofol to put patients to sleep was a drug called sodium pentothal. Mm. And sodium pentothal was a very difficult drug to control, uh, very depressing to respiration, to blood pressure, and worst of all for office surgery, it left patients nauseous. And you can't send a vomiting patient, a nauseous patient, out in the street. Don't forget, office surgery, they got to go home, you know, that day, yeah. an hour later. And so using sodium pentothal and some of the other drugs that we had made it very difficult. When I saw propofol, I knew that's going to be the drug. As soon as it became available in America, I was one of the first, I believe, uh, to use it, particularly in office practice. Uh, I introduced some of the surgeons that I worked with to propofol because they weren't even aware of it yet. Um, and, and I became an expert in its usage and I had used propofol on every patient 
literally thousands of patients over the course of the uh, eight-year period uh, that it was more or less between when I started using propofol and Michael came to the office. Um, I became friendly, as I said, with Michael, right? Mm. And I started to see him more the beginning of 95. As I, I told you we had all these late-night phone calls, whatever, sort of occasionally. But then the beginning of, actually towards the middle end of, of 1995, he started to show up more in New York because he was going to do a two-concert show at the Beacon Theater, which was going to be taped by HBO. And so he was in New York now. And he would show up at the office periodically for this or that. Nothing major, just this or that. And we were talking frequently, and I could see he was not doing well. He looked drawn. Uh, he was very skinny, skinny to begin with. He looked even worse. His color was terrible. Um, dehydrated. Uh, but, you know, it was what it was. And then on Thanksgiving Day, 1995, I was having Thanksgiving dinner with my parents at my apartment in the city. Phone rang. Michael's on the phone. Before too long, he's hysterical crying. Help me, help me. Uh, I can't take it anymore. Oh, uh, they're working me too hard. Uh, talk to my other doctors. Please be my doctor. Help me. And I was sort of flabbergasted. It was like, yeah, what am I supposed to do? You got all these other doctors. Why are you calling on me? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he felt comfortable with me. And, and I'll tell you a strange thing, because people will think, well, you're an anesthesiologist. How could you be his doctor? I mean doesn't seem to make sense. Anesthesiology is a very interesting specialty in that we don't treat disease. We facilitate what a surgeon does. Having said that, people with every kind of disease walk through an operating room. And so you have to be expert at every disease. No medications, no pathophysiology, no how anesthesia is going to affect a diabetic, a hypertensive, etc., etc., etc. So to me, it wasn't so unusual to take a, a general practitioner kind of role. Plus, I had started to do some charity work in Africa, uh, where I was put in that position as well. And there's some great stories in the book about it. I won't go into it now. At any rate, uh, I spoke to some of Michael's doctors, and I decided that I could create a, a unique treatment just for him to help him get through these shows. Uh, and it would involve propofol, but there were two other problems to me that were worse than his sleep situation. And one was the fact that he was severely dehydrated, and the second was the fact that he was nutritionally depleted. And so I thought, yeah, the, the propofol will give him a couple hours of what he's looking for, you know, even though it's not true sleep, but it's not any different than a doctor prescribed sleeping pill, really, yeah. in terms of the kind of sleep that it is. But more importantly... I could use the opportunity to give him lots of fluids, electrolytes, nutritional supplements, and hopefully do this a couple of times in the couple of weeks we had before the shows, get him, you know, so that he could get through the shows. And we did it a couple of times. Things went well. And uh, I think it was the third time we were going to do it. And this was separated by days. And, and, you know, I explained to him, this is not, this is not normal. This is way out of the box. This only works, you know, because I'm an expert at, at what this is. This is only a temporary solution. We're going to transition to something else. And so uh, 
The third time we were supposed to do it, uh, he doesn't show up. He's hours late, and I get this call. He's on the floor of the the stage of the Beacon Theater. He's collapsed. The MS is here. You're his doctor. What do you want us to do? Yeah, it freaked me out. But I quickly put together a team, and uh, you know, we got him to a hospital that we wanted so that we could control the team and everything. And you know, he stayed there for about a week. Got better, and then about uh, it continued our friendship. Uh, and then a couple of years later, I got a call, uh, come on the history tour. And it didn't work out that I could go on the whole tour. There were various reasons not, but I did end up going on the end of the history tour. And then I was with Michael every time he played publicly from then really until he died because I stopped seeing him in 2002, but he never played again publicly. Last time he played publicly was for the 9-11 concert in October of 2001, and I was with him then. And then he never played publicly again. The next time he was supposed to play publicly was the This Is It concert. Yeah, which uh, never came about. No, they never did. He died, uh, you know, a week before they were supposed to happen. And we all know that story. <laughs> yeah, now, here's the, the story that uh, I almost... <laughs> I read just enough to get confused. Conrad Murray, I believe, was his name. How did he come into the picture? Mm -hmm. You know, after 2002, I was no longer in touch with Michael. Uh, and so I know what you know. Oh, <laughs> not about I don't have any inside information on anything beyond 2002. I know what you know. I know what you've read. So I, I don't even really know the exact answer to that question. But everything was completely out of your hands at that point, and it, it sounds like you were... From, from April of 2002, that was it. That was the last time I ever saw Michael. Or, you know, my wife spoke to him. You know, I, I ran into some problems uh, in my medical practice. Um, I wanted to expand my practice in the late 80s, and I noticed in vitro fertilization, fertility... Mm -hmm. And I knew that would be a kind of specialty that I could get involved in. I knew before they knew. I knew they were going to have to set up operating rooms, and I knew they were going to need an anesthesiologist. And I, I joined the Fertility Society and walked around with a bunch of cards. Nobody knew who I was. But I got calls like crazy, developed a huge fertility practice. Now, we thought that the insurance companies would be responsible for at least the first cycle quickly found out that they weren't. Hmm. So all of the other fertility experts uh, went to a fee-for-service model, which included anesthesia for the procedure. I had one doctor, very, very high-profile doctor in New York City. I built an operating room. I had done zillions of surgeries with him. He said, every woman deserves the right to have a baby. This is bullshit. This isn't right. I'm going to bill it as gynecology. Let them do what they want. <laughs> you know, I thought I was on solid ground uh, because I was a contract player. You know, uh, I was outsourced and I didn't overbill. I gave good anesthesia. But uh, 10 years later, the Fed showed up. I got caught in the web. <laughs> I, um, I turned, you know, I decided to cooperate with the government. Uh, got screwed anyway uh, and ended up going to jail for a minute. Jeez, for thinking outside the box. And I, um, 
really bad. I'll edit that part out, I think. <laughs> I recently, you're working with uh, John Lappin as a manager, correct? He's our uh, agent. He's our publicist. I actually have another manager. I actually, my manager is actually a guy named Stuart Young. Yeah. Yes, Stuart. Stuart's an interesting character. When I was working for D'Anthony, and I was on the road with Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, uh, that's when I found out that they, I found out in a strange way. One, one day, Greg Lake says to me, I want you to meet someone. I said, okay. And uh, we were in Miami. And, you know, go to sound check, and I see this English guy, long hair, sitting there, stern-looking face. And uh, I start talking to him. He says, I'm the new manager. <laughs> <laughs> and I know we need a good tour manager. Will you come to London and be the tour manager? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I took the gig. I left D. Stuart did end up being their manager, but Stuart went on. I mean, he managed, he's managed the ELP for the entire length of time. And then he managed them individually for a while. But he also managed Billy Squire, Cindy Lauper, ACDC for 10 years. Um, now he's got Foreigner. And, and a whole slew of other people. And me, he and I have been friends for 40-odd years. So when I decided to do this, I approached Stuart and I said, hey, you know. And at first he didn't want to do it because he had never done an author or anything. But uh, eventually he, he thought there was merit and value. And uh, we've been working together on this for like five years now. I'm seeing a th- He brought John in. He knew John. Okay. Because John was working with Foreigner for about 12 years or something. Oh, John introduced me to Robert Berry. Are you familiar with him? He w- I'm familiar. I don't know him, but I know who he is. Yeah, he worked with Keith Emerson, some of the final recordings that Keith ever made. And um, Yes, him and Mark Bonilla, I think, was another one. They, they worked all worked together. Uh, you worked with Keith personally? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was, you know, tour manager for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. As a matter of fact... <laughs> If you know the history of Keith Emerson, you know he was sort of like the Jimi Hendrix of the keyboards, right? Yeah, I understand. And he, he pretty, had this... Pretty brutal on him sometimes. Uh, yeah, really. And he had these knives, right? Oh, knives. He had these knives that he... Oh, yeah, no, he had these big knives. Oh, and he would put the Hammond organ on top of him, himself, mm-hmm. you know, and he would stab the organ with these knives. It's an interesting story, actually, about one of the knives. I had to carry the knives. You know, I was like the road manager. And back in the day, you could do that. You could go through. There was no TSA. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, so you I could do that. I had these I big, guess. huge knives in my briefcase. <laughs> but one knife was really special and really important. Because Keith had been in a band previously called The Knife, right? Mm-hmm. Before he was an MC Lincoln Palmer. Yeah. And believe it or not, you know the MC5? They had a very famous frontman named Lemmy. At any rate, <laughs> Lemmy had been road manager or one of the roadies for the knife, and Lemmy gave Keith that knife. So it was a very precious knife to him. <laughs> but uh, Keith and I became close. We did. Uh, and even after, when I was in my training uh, to be a doctor, uh, we kept in contact. Uh, I went down and saw him went to the Bahamas. He had a place in the Bahamas. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I had a nice relationship with Keith. I saw him, the last time I saw him, I hadn't seen him in many years. We connect, we reconnected, you know, a year or two before his death out in LA. And it was great. It was like, you know, we had been 
in continual communication over all those years. It blew me away when I heard he took his own life. And I thought, I guess the, there's an inclination to think that because somebody is a superstar, their life is perfect. And it just, yeah. it ain't so, you know. And I don't know exactly what happened. No. He had some problems just going on with his life in general. But I understand he had some problem with, problems with his hands as well. Yeah, well, I think I think it was the problems with his hand that really created all the other problems. Oh. Because basically, he couldn't play the way he played anymore. And that freaked him out. And actually, Stuart Young, the, the guy I was talking about, was his manager in helping him out. And Stuart tried to transition him to become a conductor, which he actually did a couple of times. In the, in the latter uh, couple of months of his life, but it, it, it just didn't work. And, you know, he just, uh, again, it's that whole, you know, uh, rock star emotional instability in a way, having been something once and then not being that something anymore. And how do you deal with it? And then my hands don't work anymore. And, you know, one thing leads to another. It's a terrible, unfortunate thing. That's that's a sad, sad deal. You're obviously a, yep. a, a fun guy to be around, which I always say is one of the best compliments you can get. But you're you're trustworthy, and I see that throughout th- this whole thing. That uh, if you didn't have the track record you had, you know, you wouldn't have had the stories to tell. They would have never happened. And uh, it's, it's well, a- you know, I think it's important just to be yourself and to be honest with people. And I think it was my my realness and my honesty you know, maybe sometimes too honest, you know, that attracted these people to me because a lot of times celebrities don't get people like that. You know, the people that surround celebrities, you know, buy into that magic, so to speak, and then become totally, you know, subservient to that celebrity and yes, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Whether it's good, bad or indifferent, you know, they lose their judgment. They lose their moral and ethical judgment and they start doing things that they never should be doing dangerous oh yeah <laughs> people die because of it obviously yeah and you've seen it from the front row seat now i have to ask this question was conrad murray actually an anesthesiologist no to my uh to my knowledge he was a cardiologist and i will say this a drug like propofol should never ever 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 be given by a non-anesthesiologist. It's a serious medication, and it, it needs to be given under very serious circumstances, uh, and, and a patient needs to be fully monitored, and it should just never be done by anyone other than an anesthesiologist. And I'm not advocating the treatment that I used for Michael for anyone else. That was a one-of-a-kind. Mm-hmm was a unique situation with a unique individual. It worked in my hands, the 25 to 30 times that I gave him propofol over the eight years that I knew him. We were successful. I was very careful. I'm a trained professional. I was an expert in the administration of that particular medication. And I was very careful the way I used it with him. And again, if you look at those eight years that I was with him, he didn't miss concerts. He, he met his obligations, and he was in a fairly decent state. And again, 25, 30 times over eight years. Not every day, <laughs> not, not at every whim, but, but when a medical professional judged it to be okay. And I think it's important to point out that uh, 
yeah, he wasn't getting sleep, but you you saw him from uh, he needed fluids, he needed food, he needed fundamental things to be healthy. Yes, and to perform, and to and to be Michael Jackson, and and those things were equally as important, if not more important, than the sleep. Yeah. Wow. Tell me about your book. You know, it was a labor of love. It took me five years. I tried to be as frank and honest as I could. Um, I told the stories as I remembered them. Uh, you know, the Michael part, I think I channeled Michael. <laughs> it was like he was speaking through me. Yeah. You know, it was a cathartic experience. You know, when you write your life, you're doing a recapitulation of all those events. And you see it in a different way because it's <clears throat> many years after the fact. So in many ways, it was difficult. It was incredibly rewarding. It was nice to get all those things on paper, you know. And now, you know, it's kind of my calling card, so to speak, because I would like to go out and be a public speaker. I think I have a lot of good lessons to tell people about. Absolutely. certainly have a lot of good stories to talk about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could take your entire day up, but I won't do that. What is the title yeah. of the book? Yeah, the name of the book is Rock Doc, and it's a self-published book, so it's not yet available in bookstores, but it's available in all formats on Amazon. And let me say this. There's a lot of dialogue in the book, and I get all the accents. So you might get a kick out of the audio book. No way. Uh, and it's also... <laughs> I was going to ask. I hope, I hope you narrated it, and you did. So, okay. I'm going to check Oh, that out. I did everything. I was the narrator, and I was every person in the book. <laughs> and you do different accents. <laughs> That's good. And I do accents. I worked with somebody, <laughs> you know, who was a professional, but I, you'll get a kick out of it. People will get a kick out of oh, it. Count me in. It sounds crazy. Great. Yeah. And uh, it's also available, though, on my website, Neil, N-E-I-L, Ratner, R-A-T-N-E-R, com. If you buy the book off my website... I will autograph it any way you like. I'm there. You can't autograph the uh, audio one, so uh, I'll buy the book, too. How about that? <laughs> I appreciate that, man. <laughs> All right, Neil. I'm going to let you go and run and do whatever you're doing today, but I really appreciate your time. Well, it's been my pleasure, Bruce, and hopefully one day I'll get up to Seattle and we'll meet in person. Oh, please or do. Or you'll get down to Woodstock. You never know. Sounds good. I need to do that, too. Well, I'm here. You know my number. I've got your number. All right, Bruce. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye.
You've been listening to the Better Each Day podcast radio show with Bruce Hilliard. We'll be back with a new horizon, but until then, honor the future. It comes with a lifetime guarantee. And we're all just trying to make the next day a bit better. <laughs>